Good morning. Take your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 25. need to make you aware, some of you are new and you're breaking one of the cardinal rules of a Baptist church. Once you come into the congregation and establish a place to sit, you can't move. Because then I can't find you. And I mark you absent. And when I see you at the grocery store, I say, we missed you on Sunday. And you say, oh, no, no, I was there. Usually you tell me, I was in the nursery. (laughs) Yeah, I know about that. (laughs) I also remember the, not, I guess it's been a good number of years ago that the congregation got it in their mind and they switched sides on me. I couldn't preach. (laughs) Absolutely blew my mind. Matthew chapter 25, we're going to begin in verse number 31 this morning. I'm proud to be an American. I believe we have one of the best systems of justice in the world. If you are accused of a crime, you have the right to a trial by a jury of your peers. And you are presumed innocent until proven guilty. Now, by no means is our system perfect. It is possible that sometimes guilty people go free and innocent people go to jail, although I believe it is rare. But one day we're going to all stand before King Jesus, and the verdict on that day will be perfect. There will be no mistakes, and there will be no more excuses. We live in a strange world today, a world with conflicting views of what sin is and what even deserves judgment. We live in the days that the prophet Isaiah prophesied of when he said in Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light, light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Obviously, we live in those days when people call things that are evil good. And they call things that are good evil. Yet even in such a time as this, in a poll conducted for the Times Mirror Company, when asked more than four out of five Americans agreed that we will all be called before God on a judgment day to answer for our sins. But even though that's true, the idea of hell and judgment are not popular subjects. And I believe many of our fellow Americans would identify with the thoughts of W.C. Fields. Just before the death of the actor, a friend visited Fields in the hospital room, and he was surprised to find him thumbing through a Bible. He asked him what he was doing with the Bible, and Fields replied, I'm looking for loopholes. Some people live their lives as if they're looking for loopholes in God's judgment. 
Today in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 31, Jesus begins a parable known as the parable of the sheep and the goats. This parable is found only in Matthew's gospel and it is an appropriate ending to his teaching about his return. This teaching found in Matthew chapter 24 and 25 is called the Olivet Discourse. Jesus now, at the end of this discourse, gives us a picture of the final judgment in which the people of the world will be judged. Now there is a definite prophetic element to these words of Jesus that have to do with the future judgment at the second coming of Christ at which the nations of this world will be judged on how they have responded to God's people, Israel. But for our study today, I want us to concentrate on the personal application for each of us as believers. I want us to look at four of the most obvious points that this parable makes. And first of all, I want you to see the certainty of judgment. If God is just, and He is, there must be a day of judgment for God to right the wrongs of this life. If God is holy, and He is, there must be a day of judgment because God cannot ignore evil and still be holy. If God is compassionate, and He is, there must be a day when God will vindicate His people. If God is truth, and He is, then there must be a day of judgment because He has promised throughout His Word, the Bible, that such a judgment is coming. One such place in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27 says, And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. As one commentator clearly pointed out, he says, This is an evil world. All sins are not judged in this world, nor all good deeds rewarded. The righteous do suffer. The guilty do go free. If this is a moral universe that it is, and it is created and ruled by a moral God, then there must be a reckoning hereafter in which the tables are balanced. The good must prosper, and the evil must be punished. In fact, there are three future judgments, and I don't want you to be confused about them, and I'm just going to very quickly list them off for you. There is the judgment seat of Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10, the Apostle Paul says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. The judgment that we're talking about will take place when the Lord returns at the rapture. It is the time when the lives of the saved will be reviewed, and they will be rewarded for their faithful service. There's also the judgment of the nations. And that's what's being talked about in this parable. 
The judgment will take place when Christ returns to the earth at the end of the tribulation period to usher in his thousand-year rule and reign on the earth. The nations of the earth will then be judged based on their treatment of his people, the nation of Israel. And there is the great white throne judgment. <clears throat> I've heard people say, incorrectly, erroneously, and when I stand before the great white throne, I assure you, my friend, you do not want to stand before the great white throne. The great white throne judgment we're told about in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 and 12. The apostle John says, And then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was no, found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were open, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the book. This judgment takes place at the end of the millennial reign of Christ on earth, and all those who have rejected Christ in their lives will stand before him to hear and receive their sentence. Judgment is on its way for everyone. Those who have received Christ will have their works judged for rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. And those who profess to be believers but who do not possess salvation will stand at the great white throne and they will hear Jesus say these words, Depart from me, for I never knew you second thing that I want you to see this morning is the central figure of the judgment. Verse 31 says, And when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will, sat, he will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them one from another. As a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats, and He will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. <clears throat> it's hard to realize that as Jesus uttered these words, he stood on the Mount of Olives, and he was only 48 hours from being crucified on the Roman cross. As he stood in the gathering dusk, surrounded by just a pitiful handful of disciples, it hardly looked like he was going to be the coming judge of the world. But it is Jesus himself who is seated on the throne. And it is Jesus alone who is on the throne. In our day, we are told that Christians and Muslims worship the same God. But it is Jesus who sits on the throne, not Allah, not Muhammad, not Buddha. It is to Jesus and Jesus alone that every knee will bow, willingly or unwillingly. And it is to Jesus and Jesus alone that every tongue will confess, willingly and unwillingly, that He is the Lord. Before Him will be gathered all the nations of the world, and He will separate them as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. But don't be confused, this judgment is not based on one's nationality. The Greek word that is translated nations here, ethna, is the word that we get ethnic from. 
It is usually translated Gentile, by the way. But its basic meaning is peoples. And here it refers to every person alive when Jesus returns. The third thing I want you to see is the core of the judgment. Verse 34, Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and gave you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, Insomuch as you did unto the one of the least of my brethren, you did it to me. One of the things that kind of leaps out of this is the connection between faith and works. Here there is established a connection between what we believe and what we do. One of the mistakes made studying the parable of sheep and goats is come away with the idea that we're made righteous through the things we do. How is it then that the Bible very plainly teaches salvation by grace, through faith, apart from works, and yet the judgment here is on the basis of what people have done or failed to do? The answer is pretty simple. Works are the demonstrable evidence of faith. Our actions prove or disprove our faith. James wrote in James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to him, Depart in peace, be warm and filled, but you do not give them the things that are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Does that mean that we're saved by works after all? No. It's simply the statement of a principle that there is an unbreakable connection that exists between what we believe and what we do. We are justified. That is, that we're made acceptable to God, not by works, but by faith. But our faith is seen through our works. If we do not exhibit any works, we're not really Christians at all. Sin, according to the religions of the world, is doing what is bad or wrong. But according to the Bible, that's only half the story. Sin is not merely doing what is wrong. It can also be failing to do what is right. James says in James chapter 4, and verse 17, Therefore to him who knows to do good and does it not, to him it is sin. 
Jesus separates the sheep from the goats. But it should be noted that the sheep and the goats are not made sheep and goats by the judgment. They are only identified as what they already are. Therefore, the judgment reveals what's been true all along. The deeds of mercy which the sheep have performed are not works of merit, but examples and evidence that they are sheep and not goats. Therefore, judgment is not a threat of a fearful future determination, but rather a warning that one day all people will be revealed for what they already are. The judgment day is not so much a day on which a judgment is rendered as it is a revelation day. Judgment is not really about what we do or fail to do, but what those things reveal about who we are. And there's a surprise that's revealed. I think it's kind of funny that in the parable, Jesus reveals that both the sheep and the goats are surprised on that day. They're not necessarily surprised at their destiny, but they're surprised at the reason that is given. Neither the sheep nor the goats seem to realize that their deeds, the things that they do, mattered that much. What a revelation that judgment is going to be. The things that we thought were so important, so crucial, so vital, the the degrees we earned, the money we made, the businesses we built, the positions that we attained, all the stuff of life, all of it, every single bit of it, whether considered individually or all added together, means nothing. Zip, nada, not a thing. What matters to Jesus are the things that we did for others without regard for repayment or recognition. The proof of being saved is not the great things that we have done, but the little things we don't even remember. The reaction of the sheep and the goats to the Lord's Word were one of stunned surprise. They're completely taken back by what He says. It becomes clear that both groups expected a different basis of judgment. No doubt the believers, the sheep, would be counting on the basis of judgment to be faith. After all, salvation is by grace through faith. The goats, on the other hand, wanted and expected to be judged by works. But not those works. Both groups answered the Lord in the same way. The sheep in verse 37 say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger in need and did these things for you? And the goats likewise in verses 43 and 44 say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and not feed you, see you thirsty and not give you drink, see you a stranger or naked? When did we not do these things for you? Neither understood as... They did or did not do those things. 
that they did them for the Lord. Yet, not one of them, sheep or goats, are given the chance to say a word. The issue is already settled at this point. Each person is simply told which group to which they belong. The fourth and final thing this morning is the consequences of this judgment. Verse 41 begins to deal with the goats. Then he will also say to those on his left hand, Depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not make, take me you did not take me in naked, and you did not clothe me sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it not to one of the least of these, you did it not unto me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into everlasting life. Is hell really just a joke that we can kind of shrug off? Like the one that tells us not to worry about hell. If we die and go to hell, we'll be so busy shaking hands with old friends, we won't have time to worry. Well, I'm afraid not. Well, this passage tells us three things about hell. First of all, hell is real. Some people say, well, I can't accept that the terms that are used actually describe a physical hell. They say the terms that are used are only symbolic. If the terms describing hell are symbolic rather than literal, such as eternal fire and darkness and torment, we may be sure that the reality, which is beyond our imagining, exceeds the symbol in dreadfulness. New Testament teaching about hell is meant to shock us. It's meant to strike us dumb with terror. Because just as heaven will be far better than we could dream, so hell will be far worse than we can conceive. Hell is real. Hell is also separation. Verse 41 through 46 address those on the left whom he identifies as goats. What is really alarming is to realize, as Pastor Ray Stedman says, it is the judgment here is between sheep and goats, not between sheep and wolves. Jesus is not choosing between the obviously bad and the obviously good. But in the judgment of the sheep and the goats, Jesus is distinguishing sharply among the persons, all of whom profess to be Christians and claim to belong to Him. It is the separation of the hypocrite from the real, the false from the true. Verse 41, he tells us that he says, Depart from me, you cursed, 
into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I think we need to note plainly that Jesus states that this everlasting fire was not prepared for human. It was not prepared for the unsaved, but rather it was prepared for the devil and his angels. But those who reject Christ will nevertheless suffer that which was never intended for them. We sometimes think of hell as a place where demons torment humans. But Jesus pictures hell as a place where the fallen angels, the demons, and the rebellious human beings are together in their suffering. Jesus is speaking of eternal separation from God. Separation from His goodness, from His joy, from peace, from every other good thing. There will be eternal separation from God and eternal association with the devil and his angels. And the last thing is that hell is eternal. The sheep are separated from the goats, the latter going away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Verse 46, I think you ought to take the time to circle those words. Verse 46 uses exactly the same word, eternal. It's the same Greek word to describe the duration of the punishment of the sinners in hell as he does the duration of the believer's life in heaven. He says that both will be eternal. The end of the story, the end of the parable is simple and impossible to misinterpret. The goats go to hell and the sheep go to heaven. And that final separation is complete and irreversible. It still bothers us to believe that a loving God would send anyone to hell. But C.S. Lewis explains it this way, and I think it's a good explanation. Sin is man's way of saying to God throughout his life, go away and leave me alone. And hell is God finally saying to man, you may have your wish. I will go away and leave you alone. Let's pray. Father, it's certainly my prayer that no one under the sound of my voice this morning is choosing to reject Christ. But I suspect it may be true that someone's here. They may not even realize that they have rejected Christ. They simply may say, well, I haven't accepted Him. But every time the invitation has been extended to them and they have not accepted, they have rejected. I pray that if there's anyone here today that doesn't know you as their personal Savior, they'd recognize that they are sinners, just like everyone else in this place. They cannot save themselves. But that Jesus has already done everything necessary for their salvation. He paid for their sins on the cross of Calvary. 
And all they must do is accept that payment. Accept what Jesus has done by turning to you and admitting that they're sinners and asking to be saved. Father, all of us know of people in our families, people that we work with, people in our neighborhood who are not saved. Help us to really realize that hell is real. And those who reject you really do spend an eternity separated from you. Help us to be so convicted that we can't stand it until we share with those that we know so that they may too make a choice to follow you. Lord, whatever it is that you want to do in our hearts and lives this morning, we want to turn this time over to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.